0: The more we practice, the more you might notice some baggage that collects. For example, just notice what comes to mind when you hear the word practice. I'm practicing. I came to the retreat to practice. It's time to get up and practice. We use that word a lot, and uh, it collects baggage. And one of the ways that it can get skewed is this idea that practice is all about finding the weeds, plucking the weeds in the mind. And there's a lot of truth to that understanding of practice, being vigilant, guarding the senses, uprooting the defilements or the torments of mind. But using that garden metaphor, there's more to being a good gardener than getting rid of the weeds, right? There's the cultivation of what supports the life of the plant, good sunlight, water, soil. So tonight I'd like to talk about some of the wholesome qualities of mind that really support this process of awakening, this natural process. Always reflecting on the practice as a natural unfolding. And so our job, our responsibility as a practitioner is how how can we affect, support this natural process, strengthen it, weed out what needs to be weeded out, support what needs to be supported. These are the four exertions, the basic definition of right effort in the Buddhist teachings. We want to abandon what's unwholesome, prevent unwholesome qualities from arising, but we also want to develop the wholesome qualities and maintain them. And so tonight I'll talk about the wholesome qualities in terms of the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And specifically, not so much as a mental training, which is one of the ways people practice from time to time, where they're formally doing a meditation on one of these four beautiful qualities of mind, but more as an attitudinal uh, intervention in our practice, or sort of something we bring in, some new soil we bring into our practice that really uh, supports this natural process of waking up, of seeing what the mind hasn't seen before, and letting go of what needs to be let, let go of. So one of the ways the Buddha talked about these four qualities, this you can find in many of the suttas, this particular phrase, sometimes called the suffusion of divine abidings. And the Buddha says, I will abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness. He'd say the same thing for the other three, a mind imbued with compassion, with appreciative joy, with equanimity, and he goes on, Likewise, the second quarter, the third quarter, the fourth quarter, above all, uh, above and below, all around, everywhere, and to all as to myself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, and measurable, without hostility and without ill-will." So we chant this at the center where I work and teach in Minneapolis every morning at the beginning of the 6.30. We chant the four quarters, bringing to mind these four qualities of mind that can really support our practice. And I've noticed over the years People have one or two general attitudes about loving-kindness practice. And when I use loving-kindness or metta tonight, I'm really meaning the whole spectrum from loving-kindness to compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. So people generally fall into two camps. Those people who really like loving-kindness reflections and practices and talks and, and those people who don't like it. And the interesting thing, both groups seem to really benefit <laughs> from the practice and from the reflection. And including the third group, those people who don't know yet whether they like or dislike it, <laughs> it's probably good for you too if you fall into that group. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. I'll be sharing some of his teachings tonight. He has a funny story talking about when he first arrived in England as a, you know, a Buddhist, a Thai forest monk having practiced with Achan Cha in Thailand for a number of years. And uh, uh, he asked the local people that were coming, showing up at the monastery, do you practice metta? And they said, oh, I can't stand it. So I asked, well, what do you think it is? And they said, well, it's that smarmy whitewashing of your mind where you say you love absolutely everything. You're supposed to try to convince yourself that you love your enemies and that you love yourself Can you imagine spending an hour just thinking about how you love yourself? (laughs) He goes on, he says, I realize they didn't really understand metta. Metta is not an idealistic state of mind. Metta does not necessarily mean liking anything at all. It means an attitude of not dwelling on the unpleasantness or faults of any situation inside or outside oneself. Now with metta, one isn't blinding oneself with an ideal. Instead one is witnessing the unpleasantness in a situation, thing, person, or in oneself without creating anything around it. You simply stop the mind from thinking I hate it, I don't want it. That's what I consider to be metta. So this is a a useful counterweight to any idealistic notions we have about metta. I mean they can be useful to a degree But you know, the Buddha often used the negatives because they were a little bit more concrete in our actual experience. So for example, Nibbana, this could be a very idealistic term about enlightenment or freedom, but the basic definition the Buddha used was the cessation, the ending of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. Well, that makes it really understandable. I mean, we may not realize that, but we can at least intellectually understand. We can imagine even, because we know what it's like with greed, anger, delusion in the mind, so it wouldn't be that. (laughs) (laughs) So metta is non-aversion in the mind. Now that we probably experience in moments from time to time. A mind that relatively or maybe in a very deep way free from aversion. And it can be inspiring those moments when our mind isn't afflicted in any way by aversion. I really appreciated Steve's talk last night, in part because in talking about the torments, he felt, he seemed, from my perspective, very alive and funny and... uh, in an energetic way, not expressing what we normally imagine might come from someone reflecting on the torments of mind, right? <laughs> and there's something in that humor, in that lightness, that also has the quality of metta. There's something loving and uh, wise and free and uh, being light because Being in in the experience of what's difficult, often difficult, the torments of mind, the pain in the knee, boredom, wanting to be home with our cat or our partner or our food. (laughs) Or somebody said, my latte. (laughs) So when we laugh like we just did a moment ago you see the relationship we have to what's actually a moment a torment see now all of a sudden there's a different view in the mind when a torment appears to be a torment the mind is locked in a self-centered view it's taking the pain the unpleasantness of it personally but when we can laugh even a little bit we can smile, when we can share in community about the torments of mind, (laughs) which was what makes the small groups so powerful, is to be in that circle where people in honest ways are talking about what's being seen, how they're working with it, what's difficult, what's beautiful. It's really liberating because it shifts the view we have about what we normally take to be very personal and private, and about me, like a, a ball and chain that I personally have to drag around, my aversion, my fear, my neurotic defensiveness, my insecurity, my need for your approval, your love. And when we talk about it, notice how much lighter it feels. There's a great line, you probably have heard it, it's been around the block, I used to think that Lily Tomlin said it, but I looked it up on the computer today and evidently George Bernard Shaw said this. Yes, slightly different. Maybe Lily Tomlin used it in one of her shows, if if you remember her. If you're going to tell people the truth, you better make them laugh, otherwise they'll kill you. (laughs) I thought about this line when Steve was giving the talk last night. (coughs) Because when... When it's when there is that lightness, it feels workable. At least we're willing to apply ourselves. Here's another version of Steve's talk from Ajahn Chah. I thought it was very similar in a lot of ways, and it has the same—not so much the humor end, but more the tenderness end—that makes the torments of mind seem workable. This is again from Ajahn Chah, this wonderful um, Thai Buddhist monk and teacher, and trainer of many of the um, senior Western teachers, training this mind. Actually, there's nothing much to this mind. It's simply radiant in and of itself. It's naturally peaceful. Why the mind doesn't feel peaceful right now is because it gets lost in its own moods. There's nothing to mind itself. It simply abides in its natural state, that's all. That sometimes the mind feels peaceful and other times not peaceful is because it has been tricked by these moods. The untrained mind lacks wisdom. It's foolish. Moods come and trick it into feeling pleasure one minute, suffering the next. Happiness then sadness. But the natural state of a person's mind isn't one of happiness or sadness. This experience of happiness and sadness is not the actual mind itself but just these moods which have tricked it. The mind gets lost, carried away by these moods with no idea what's happening. And as a result, we experience pleasure and pain accordingly because the mind has not been trained yet. It still isn't very clever. And we go on thinking that it's our mind which is suffering or our mind which is happy, when actually it's just lost in various moods. And then a little later in this talk, he says, the mind is naturally peaceful. It's in order to understand just this much that we have come together to do this difficult practice of meditation. So maybe, like you maybe felt last night, and maybe now having heard this, there's this combination of feeling somewhat inspired to do the work that's being asked of us, and also a real sense of patience and forgiveness for the enormity of the task and the challenges in the practice. And this is a a place we can come back to, this this place that seems somewhat paradoxical of being inspired, but also respectful of the challenges in the practice. And that they actually work quite well together. One way that I bring this to mind and sometimes share with uh, at retreats and classes that I teach is just a simple reflection, and I'll share a few other phrases that you can use throughout the day, just in a moment here, a particular question or a particular phrase. But one such phrase that I found helpful is the phrase, it's not easy being a human being. Now we're not using that phrase theoretically, but The phrase itself brings the attention, the wise attention, the wise and kind attention to the experience of the mind and body. So when we say it's not easy being a human being, there is right here and now the experience of being a human being. So we're tuning in to how it is being a human being. And you can be more specific. It's not easy having a conditioned mind with habits and fear and greed. It's not easy having a human mind. You can just let that sink in, repeat it silently in your mind maybe once or twice. Of course, it's not easy having a body. The pains and the pleasures of the body are confusing, right? It's not easy having a body. It's not easy having an aging body, a sick body, having to care for the body. At lunch today, some of the staff and Steve and others were talking about hair. It's not easy even having hair. (laughs) Let alone all of the other functions we have to take care of. And just that combination of humor and and really getting the truth that it it is a burden having a body. It's a burden having relationships as beautiful and supporting as relationships are. It's not easy being in relationship with others, either in terms of like this larger community or individual relationships you have with your children, your partners, your family. It's not easy being in relationships. And in in the most subtle level, it's not easy having a sensitive heart. This heart, or whatever you want to call it, but I, I guess Steve calls it a heart. I like that word heart. And we don't have to position it somewhere like this pump that moves the blood in the body. But there is some place that we experience suffering So let's call that the heart. And this heart is sensitive. Every single moment it's impinged upon by sense experience, sounds and sights and thoughts and sensations. It's not easy having a human heart, a sensitive heart that's so exposed and vulnerable to whatever's gonna show up in the next moment, which of course, we don't know what that's gonna be. So you see these kinds of reflections, you notice how that ha- that they have both elements of wisdom and what we would normally call love or compassion or tenderness or patience or forgiveness, kindness. When we use a phrase, you're, you're, and you're gonna to need to find your own, I'll suggest a few, but, and I, as I've been mentioning in some of the small groups, you might have a particular question that really brings the practice alive or balances the mind. So if it's caught in some aversion, you can correct that. But the phrase or the question might work for a while, and then, it, and then we overuse it generally, and it stops working. So we have to renew like ways to bring love and wisdom in a, back into the practice in a fresh way, in a real way, instead of thinking we can do the practice on an automatic pilot. Well, it worked before, so I'll do it again. We, we need to um, bring love compassion, joy, equanimity, we need to bring these qualities into the practice because one thing that we all have a lot of confidence in, at least at times, and maybe much of the time, the practice is difficult, it's challenging. And how does the mind, how is the mind conditioned to relate to what's difficult? Its habit is to not like what's difficult, to be averse, what's difficult so even though it's not our conscious intention aversion is going to creep in to the practice that's why maybe when i asked you to notice what comes up when i say the word practice you might have noticed some aversion you know like the big should i should practice i'm not good enough at my practice i should be better i don't try hard enough At my practice or I don't know how to do my practice so aversion I think it's fair to say will creep in sneak in meaning we won't think we're being averse as we're practicing as we bring the attention back to the present moment but there's a good chance a lot of the time there's some flavor of aversion in the mind and then you can as you as you become more attuned to this fact or this tendency then you can bring in a question or a phrase that might illuminate what the mind is not otherwise seeing something simple like how's the heart doing so you're there chugging along with your practice and then you just check in how's the heart doing are you hurting? Can that be okay? Like sometimes with our good friends, and they're hurting, and there's really nothing we can do, but acknowledging that they're hurting is something. It's a really beautiful, supportive intervention in our own particular way to acknowledge to somebody, I know you're hurting, I know this is hard now for you and I care about you, because I also know what it's like when things are hard. And I wish it weren't this way, but I understand that it is this way for you now. And we can do this for ourselves. We don't have to wait for somebody else. And some of the telltale signs that aversion has crept into your practice is, you have this general attitude, get me out of here. And when you think you're being spiritual, you think, yeah, I'm going, you know, I want to get out of samsara, you know, and it masquerades as good practice. I, I see dukkha. I see the limitations of sense experience, the pervasive, underlying, unsatisfactoriness of all sense experience. So I'm going to do what the Buddha says. I'm going to practice disenchantment, relinquishment, dispassion, but it's really just aversion, right? We And you, you see this a lot in Buddhist circles, at least at times in people's practice, sort of an aversion. But remember the freedom that we're actually looking for is freedom that will be expressed in the messiness of life, having a body, an aging body, a fading mind, <laughs> which I'm beginning to notice now that I'm in my past my mid-fifties, and uh, and all the other things that don't quite work in life, which is actually almost everything. <laughs> Nothing, that, maybe you know this, The I guess, I'm, I'm not really a scholar, but the, evidently the root for the word dukkha, which is translated as suffering or unsatisfactoriness, has to do with a wheel that's out of true, or like a... An axle, that doesn't quite work with the wheel. And it, and the whole system, you know, the cart just does not work very well. And if you're sitting on it, it's not going to be a good ride. <laughs> I thought, that's a good word for, a good root for the word dukkha, for this, how we experience life. And Pema Chodron, who's, this is really one of her, gifts is to talk about this aspect of practice what's difficult and she has a wonderful line she says never underestimate our inclination to bolt when it hurts (laughs) (laughs) so we're going to notice this aversive critical judgmental um, attitudes coming up in practice but we have to remember that any kind of resistance is not the way Any kind of tightness is not the way. And this is why it can be so powerful, each of us in our own creative ways, to bring love into the mix as we're intending to be aware of how it is now. And we have to find a way to do it that isn't sentimental, that isn't forcing or idealistic, but that's actually real. The heart that cares, is connected, is involved in this waking up process, this opening up, seeing clearly process. This is Sayada Utejaniya. He says, you have to accept and watch both good and bad experiences. You want only good experiences. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this reasonable? (laughs) (laughs) Is this the way of Dhamma? No. No, and so it's so clear to us that if we act as if that is an appropriate way, like I'll sit as soon as I organize my body so there are no unpleasant se- uh, sensations, or you know get your room in order, or whatever else you always feel we have to do to control our experience, to manage what's unpleasant in order to practice, before we practice, instead of realizing that this is exactly what the practice is about, including things as subtle as uh, our experience being confusing or ambiguous, which happens a lot. I'll just give a little example. I was doing some walking practice not too long ago why most of you were doing the six fifteen sit and and I was just watching my mind and and then the thought came up something like, "Am I aware and uh And I noticed some contraction, like the mind needing to know whether I'm being a good practitioner, doing it right and That, like, needing to nail it down actually gets in the way of the practice. Sometimes we don't have to check whether there's awareness. It's like too big of a move. Some of you have heard this talk where Joseph Goldstein gives this example. I think he was in, like, second or third grade, and as a science project, they were growing carrots and... uh, Being like a lot of us, you know, he wanted to see if they were growing, so we'd dig up, you know, (laughs) to look down there. Well, it actually, it's, it's a kind of aversion to need to know, to be uncomfortable not knowing. So I want to share some of the qualities of metta that I feel inform this process of mindfulness and wisdom coming together as the awakening process we're cultivating this awareness of what's here and now and we're remembering to bring in or to remember right view that it's a natural process or to see what's being what the mind is aware of in terms of a natural process it's a movement of nature whether we're observing the mind or the body or anything else one aspect of love, of compassion, or all the qualities of love is this inclusivity. In fact, I really like this as a basic definition of love. Love is that quality of the heart that includes, or that understands that everything belongs. And in a way, you might feel it as a a generosity of heart. Like I'm this heart, is willing, it's a gift. I'm willing to say yes to everything. And that can be one of your phrases, just the word yes, or two words, of course. So ways that invite this inclusive attitude with experience. This is from the beginning of Sharon Salzberg, salzberg's book on loving kindness it's a wonderful book by the way i read it first i thought oh it's a really good manual of the formal loving kindness practices and then i've since read it maybe five or six times over the years and use it quite a bit and now i feel there's a real transmission in that book that goes way beyond the formal practices of loving kindness and i'm not sure it's just me or the writing or who knows what but I recommend the book. (laughs) And so early in that book she has this quote, great fullness of being, which we experience as happiness, can also be described as love. To be undivided and unfragmented, to be completely present is to love. To pay attention is to love. Now remember, these teachings aren't meant to be some metaphysical truth. Paying attention is love. And then you can get in an argument with somebody who will say something else. The question is, is that a skillful idea to bring into the mind? Or what is the karmic effect of bringing that idea into the mind? Paying attention as the activity of kindness or as the activity of love or as the activity of compassion. How does that change or support the practice and this is exactly the kind of experimentation and creativity the practice needs otherwise it's a real slog you know if we're not interested enough to be creative and to try some things and to make some mistakes we don't really grow in our practice we often hear this idea that mindfulness doesn't care, right? like a mirror doesn't care what shows up in front of it. Well, it's the same with love. Love by its very definition knows how to connect or knows how to meet what's arising in experience. In formal uh, structured metta loving kindness meditation, there's a technique of expanding the field of loving-kindness where we're some of you know this we're using different beings and different directions and until there isn't any place that feeling of loving-kindness can't go so in our awareness practice and integrating love loving-kindness into the awareness practice it's the same thing we want to lead with the presumption with the um, sort of hypothesis that love is always available and always functional, always useful, supportive. When wouldn't it be supportive? Joko Beck, who died a couple years ago, a wonderful Zen teacher in the San Diego area, She has this little teaching that I think relates to loving-kindness. She has an acronym ABC, a bigger container. And so, sometimes in practice, the mind feels stuck or it's sticky. The mind, the torments are just re-arising, re-expressing themselves. And it doesn't, it's not clear how to be skillful, how to practice. And so this quality of inclusivity has this sense of expansion. So love and wisdom has this capacity to, you could say, step back. But there's a sense of expansion because awareness isn't affected or love isn't affected by what's being known. So there's always a way when the mind appears to be stuck, appears to be bound up in the experience and the difficulty, there's always a way for the mind to notice that. And so the mind that's noticing that I feel stuck is not stuck. And that's that, it's a quality of nimbleness Another quality of um, metta, loving-kindness, is it has this capacity to be gentle and kind. Yielding, you could say. So it's not aggressive, it's not controlling. It knows how to care. Without an agenda, like if we put it in terms of relating to somebody who's sick, we would never, it would never be appropriate to go to a loved one who has cancer and say something like, I really care about what's going on, I really want to be here for you, but if you don't start improving pretty soon, I'm just not gonna be able to handle it and I'm gonna have to withdraw. But isn't that the attitude we have toward the difficulties in our mind? It's like, okay, I'll practice with this for a while or even with the pain in our knee. Okay, I'm going to be with you for a while, but that better have a result. You know, I'm expecting one of those times when I look at the pain in the knee and then it breaks up, and then there's just that light sort of <laughs> movement of tingling vibration, no pain anywhere. So this is the uh, this softness, this gentleness, this willingness to connect. It's not. Uh, it's not a contract. It's an in- inherent capacity. To yield, to receive, to allow. It's a fearlessness, really, that we see sometimes in the mind, in the heart. Uh, somebody who used to teach at IMS regularly, Corrado Penza, from Italy. He coined the term, I think, affectionate awareness that he used a lot. And you can just check right now. It doesn't take more than a moment. You know, as you right now relate to the body or right now relate to this experience of sitting and hearing a talk and noticing how the mind is, that it's, it is possible to relate in a gentle, yielding, accepting way. It's not a stretch for the heart or mind. It's actually available. What makes it a stretch is we forget to call upon this capacity. Now imagine how different our life would be if we had called on this capacity of the mind to relate with gentleness, and acceptance and patience. Imagine if we had called on that all the times that it would have been functional. How much more skillful we would have been in life and how much more the body and mind wouldn't have suffered from unnecessary tension, contraction. Just that simple remembering to invite in the quality of gentleness i catch i do this a lot on retreat and and even during my daily practice you know i'll be stomping around doing things and and it would just occur to me you know i could just be a little softer on the floor you know my feet on the floor or how i'm reaching or like i'll catch myself cooking and there'll be a very subtle violence in how i'm chopping or I'm moving things around just a, a, an aggressiveness and then it just occurs to me oh it doesn't have to be this way because my mind and body actually knows another way I know how to be gentle you could even use the word relaxed here another quality of loving-kindness that I, th- I feel supports wisdom the work of wisdom is this nimbleness of love. And I've talked about this already in different ways. But one of the images that's used in the tradition is love, metta, knows how to fill the space or to meet what's arising. And the image that's used in the same way that you could pour water in any shaped vessel and the water is going to fill that vessel perfectly love when it has some momentum, when it's unconditioned love, not a personal kind of love, it knows how to meet the moment. That's why there are these four expressions, the basic friendliness of metta, and compassion is when this wisdom and friendliness of metta meets what's difficult, then it naturally morphs into what we call compassion. That quality of mind that knows how to get close to what's difficult. That's what compassion is. It is the quality of mind that knows how to be close to what's difficult. And appreciative joy or mudita is that quality of mind that knows how to be close to what's beautiful. And equanimity, upeka, is the quality of mind that knows how to meet, to be close, with what's confusing and ambiguous and uncertain. It's not gonna demand that it be certain because sometimes things aren't certain. A lot of the time, things are ambiguous. And if we didn't have a quality of the heart that knew how to show up, then a large portion of our lives we'd be destined to be aversive in. So thankfully, we have these four qualities. The idea being, the way the Buddha taught, that takes care of us. That with one of these four, some combination, We can meet life as it actually is. So again, using that image of the mirror, where the quality of love and the quality of awareness and wisdom, it doesn't get weak from what it's meeting. It remains pure, unspoiled by whatever is showing up Whatever is being known. Another aspect of this nimbleness of love is it had this image it's lying in wait. It isn't needing to connect with experience, it's not neurotic in that way. And you see this sometimes, people, when uh, we have a lot of joy. It's like we have to do something with it because it somehow feels energetically that if I don't do something with this good feeling, it's gonna you know, burst and make a mess or something. So it, it spills over. But when it's in balance, this energy of love, it's ready to meet what needs to be met, but it doesn't need, it doesn't have a need, a personal need to do anything. So it's in this this potential state. And again, it's very similar to wisdom. Wisdom, awareness is just ready naturally to meet, to know the experience, and to understand it's just this. It's just this natural unfolding process. Where metta is ready to meet and understand this also belongs. This belongs here. It wouldn't be arising here if it didn't belong here. Of course, So that's a phrase you can use. Of course you belong. Given these innumerable causes and conditions being the way that they are, of course. Of course it's like this now. Sometimes experience is like this and sometimes it's like something else. But right now it's like this. Well, can that be okay? Ajahn Sumedho talks about um, being a senior monk, training other monks, and uh, all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but it just became more and more obvious that it was a problem. He just noticed being really jealous of some of the other monks, perhaps some of the nuns. I don't know what time this was, whether there were a lot of nuns around at that time. But anyway, and uh, of course, being a senior monk and being a monk generally, it's like, I shouldn't be jealous. And so the tendency of the mind, as he described, would be to repress it because I shouldn't be jealous. And he talks about how he had to work work with it. Then I reflected on it. And this is an example of that nimbleness, like how is the mind gonna get itself out of this pickle of thinking we're practicing by suppressing or repressing something that we think is, shouldn't be there. Then I reflected on it. I said, you are obviously doing something wrong. You've tried everything to get rid of it, but it doesn't go away through all your efforts. Then I realized that the problem wasn't really with jealousy. The real problem was the aversion to the jealousy. Now, how many times have we been told this exact thing? You know, It's not this, it's the not liking of this. But it's amazing how deluding this can be because we always think it's this it's the knee pain that's the problem not it's not that I of course I don't like it it's knee pain you know it just makes so much sense it seems rational to hate what's unpleasant that was the real problem so then I started feeling jealous uh, so then when I started feeling jealous I'd say oh yes jealousy again welcome and I'd de- deliberately be jealous. I'd think, I am jealous because I'm afraid that person is better than I am. i bring it into full consciousness. Now this is a little trick or creative move you can try sometimes as a particular kind of medicine when there's a particular thought that is very seductive, then repeat it, intentionally repeated in the mind so that you're really seeing it in full view. You're not embarrassed. This is what the mind is saying to itself, okay? And then you say it and you welcome it. I'm jealous because I'm afraid that person is better than I am. I'd listen to it, really watch it and befriend it rather than saying, rather than saying, Oh, here it comes again. I've got to get rid of it. I'd say, Oh, jealousy, my old pal. I learned a lot from jealousy. So in this way, love really supports this intimacy with difficult experience, really sees, it's in contrast where it really sees what's unnecessary. I've made this, use this example in some of the small groups. You know, if you wash a white cloth so it's really clean, you're, you're gonna catch any dirt that starts to collect on the cloth but if it's really dirty, it doesn't show up. So when you have the quality of non-aversion well established in the mind, any aversion that creeps in is really gonna show up. And that's the problem is we don't catch it. Joseph Goldstein has a, a line where he's talking about difficult experiences and he asks the question, Why do we add an immutable, horrible self-image to this? You know, there's knee pain. Why do we construct this edifice around the knee pain? I'm a bad yogi. I'm never going to be able to succeed at this practice because my knees are bad. And it, it, it just, with time, it becomes this huge thing in the mind and in our practice until... We get the right instruction and the right encouragement from within or from without, and we pop it with wisdom and love. Wisdom allows us to get close, allows wisdom to get close, and wisdom sees it's just a thought, and the whole thing collapses. Ajahn says we have metta for ourselves. When we have metta for ourselves, we start listening to what we really think of ourselves. And I added no editing. Don't be frightened. Be courageous and listen to the unpleasant thoughts or fears that go through your mind. And then later in this section he says, I reckon that the ability to sit with the rubbish is a sign of an advanced student. It takes a long time for people to just let the rubbish come up like that. So sometimes we think, um, you know, especially the point I made a few moments ago about metta being soft and yielding and gentle, it can be this idea that it's weak and that somehow if we cultivate this attitude of mind that people will take advantage of our kindness. They'll take advantage of our sensitivity, our receptivity, and, you know, we'll suffer. But there's something really powerful about love and even fierce at times. Some of you know Kamala Masters, uh, someone who often uh, teaches here at IMS and has been uh, one of the main teachers for this retreat over the years. And uh, she has one of these personalities that at least on the surface you see as being soft and yielding and receptive, and those of us who know her really love this part of her. But she also has a, a really uh, fierce and powerful strength. And it's been interesting knowing her as a teacher um, for so many years, and uh, just seeing that now, I, I think it's partly me being a- knowing her and being able to see it, and maybe partly that how she expresses her Self has changed over the years, I'm not sure, but just seeing more clearly that quality of strength and power, this is what the Buddha says. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love, we will practice it, we will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. And you know, if you've read um, some of Sayadaw Utejaniya's books or been able to go on some of his retreats, he talks about momentum in practice and how we wanna keep supporting the conditions that lead to momentum. And I think there's an equivalent to loving kindness where we're, through reflecting this way, seeing the world, meeting experience with love, compassion, equanimity, and joy, over and over and over again it becomes the tendency of the mind it builds up a head of steam and this habit of mind right it's a habit it has a particular resonance or coherence because it aligns with the underlying nature of the mind you might have heard that metta these qualities of the mind they're called unbounded or boundless states or immeasurable states and I think one of the reasons that that word is used is because when, when you tap in, when you uncover, and as the Buddha says or set it going, it just fits so well in the heart when it has momentum. It has its own integrity. It isn't easy to topple over when it has momentum. In the same way, awareness and wisdom, when it has momentum, it isn't easy for that to be toppled over either. either. Joseph Goldstein uses this nice image where he has an upside down bowl and he says if you put a marble on top its tendency is to immediately roll off but when momentum comes it's like that bowl gets inverted. That marble still might roll around but now its tendency is to come back to the center, to things as they are. And I feel that that's true in the cultivation of loving-kindness. If we make it part of our practice, this reflection, and are creative in bringing the mind back here over and over again, it will be a real force in the mind. It will protect the mind. And in the tradition, loving-kindness is seen as a powerful protection. People in Buddhist countries, they chant the loving-kindness sutta as a protection. Remembering this capacity to the heart to love unconditionally protects one. And it's not just, uh, you know, something like people make up in, in Buddhist cultures. You see this directly, how when our mind is identified with aversion, we are in dangerous territory of creating harm for ourselves and others. And when our mind is deeply established in the attitude of loving-kindness, we have real immunity from a lot of the dangers, the very real dangers in life. This is Ajahn Sumedho responding to somebody being worried about being trampled upon because of the cultivation of loving-kindness. It's a really powerful response, he says, If you think kindness is a sentimental niceness that you apply to every situation equally, then of course it's not gonna work. Nobody can do that, and the more you try, the more foolish you are, and the more people won't have any respect for you because it's not genuine. But real metta is strong, and it's an appropriate response to life. It isn't a kind of bland niceness, but an alertness, a responsiveness to pain and pleasure, and to other conditions that we must bear. Metta isn't pretending that everything's all right, but rather it's about not making problems, not compounding present pain or ugliness with the aversion that comes out of ignorance. It's the ability to be patient and accept the flow of life as it happens. To carry negativity with you is one extreme, and the other is trying to pretend that everything is all right all the time this pretense is a deluded state of mind. Real metta, real wisdom work together. When our responses to life are not coming out of ignorance, they may not necessarily be glad. They may be quite sharp and even wrathful, but they can still be filled with metta. This means that they're appropriate responses rather than reactions arising out of desire and fear. Metta can be a slap or it can be a pat. It's not in the slapping or the padding. Metta is in the wisdom of the mind that's behind the action. So as we continue with our practice tonight and the days ahead, we wanna recognize directly because it will be a cause for faith this alchemy of wisdom and love so this combination of mindful awareness and bringing in the attitude of loving kindness or compassion or joy equanimity and bringing in the understanding of right view that of course it's this way Causes and conditions are unfolding like this. This is a natural process. It can't be other than what it is right now. And with these forces joined together, or these qualities of mind joined together, there's real freedom. Already the mind is experiencing some freedom, right? Freedom from aversion freedom from the mind being disconnected and unaware. Being disconnected and unaware is stressful. This is one of the great boons of being on retreat, that you'll see that being in a distracted state of mind like caught in a fantasy, even if the fantasy itself is pleasant, you'll notice when you catch that the mind has been absorbed in some fantasy, you'll catch the tension that was required to maintain the fantasy. So there's no escape except through a deepening of understanding. And because this is a challenging and often difficult practice, metta is required for wisdom to do its work, to be close, to know, to connect. And for the stability, the state the steadiness of attention. These are the last three stanzas from the loving kindness sutta. This is Andy Olensky's translation. He says or the Buddha says, Develop a mind of loving kindness unbounded toward the entire world, above and below and all the way round, with no holding back, no loathing, no foe standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, as long as one is devoid of torpor, one would resolve upon this mindfulness. This is known as sublime abiding here. Without falling into mistaken views, endowed with insight and integrity, guiding away greed for central things, one would not be born again into a womb. Free from the cycles of suffering or samsara. So let's just take a moment and rest in the experience of kindness, awareness.